welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's pray again and just commit our hearts and minds to the Lord as we look to God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark in this world, but you have given us the light of your Word and your Spirit to guide us. We pray that you would instruct us through this powerful passage of Romans. And Lord, we just commend ourselves, our evening to you, and may you have your way with us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I get the privilege of preaching one of those yummy passages, and we're not going to be able to really dig in like I wish we could. This message itself, or this text, this paragraph, should be probably taken in two or three weeks, but we've got this afternoon. But, you know, David, when you were saying you woke up and you kept on thinking of all the things to be anxious about, all the things going wrong and all the bad news, when you turn on the news, it feels like there's mostly bad news, right? I don't know if this is the year for it or they're having a special on it, but it feels that way. And when you do, it's a good thing to do what David was telling us. Rehearse the scripture. And I encourage you to tune in when that happens to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. That's going to be our text in our exposition of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And the main thing that Paul unfolds here for us is fantastic news. It's to offset all the bad stuff we're hearing. What he does is lay out the truth of God's reconciliation of sinners through the substitutionary death of his son Jesus and he talks about the the amazing, beautiful, breathtaking good news that God saves sinners through Jesus. Amen? And really, when we stop to think about that, when we meditate on it, it should take our breath away. It is such incredible news. Paul never got over the gospel, you know that? He never did. Writing his protege, young protege in the faith, Timothy, he uh, told him in 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy statement deser- deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He says, He saved me. He even saved me. He never got over it, and I hope we don't either. And I hope you find encouragement in this passage of Scripture. Our brief outline, I'll just give it to you, and then we'll come back and, and look at it point by point, but we're going to, first of all, look at, look at our spiritual condition before Christ, which was rebellion. God's response to our condition, and we've had these terms bantered about, and they're so wonderful, a propitiation. That's God's response to our condition. That is the atoning death of Christ, and that resulted in reconciliation or being put into God's favor. And then the, the last thing we'll cover is the outcome of God's propitiation and reconciliation, which is exaltation in the person of God himself. But let's look at that first point, our spiritual condition before Christ. In a word, that is rebellion. Paul would have us reflect on our state of being, our spiritual state of being, before redemption. And if we're truly going to appreciate what he's talking about in all the book of Romans, propitiation and reconciliation and all these great themes of redemption, then it's profitable for us to realize and to embrace what necessitated those great moves of God, right? 
And we need to start off by asking ourselves the question then, what was our relationship to God before we were redeemed? And I have chosen the word rebellion, but it's not in your text. The reason I chose that is because it encompasses the four adjectives that Paul gives us in this paragraph that describe our pre-saved condition. Four adjectives that boldly and accurately tell us who we were before Christ. And they, let me just read them to you, and then we'll look at each one individually. The first one is helpless in verse 6. Second one is ungodly, also in verse 6. Then we are called sinners in verse 8. And finally, we are entitled enemies in verse 10. And it doesn't matter what a person is or what their background is, whether they're religious or irreligious, conservative or liberal, man or woman, rich or poor. Man's unredeemed relationship to God is defined by these terms. They define the rebellious scope of man's natural relationship to God. And by natural, I mean inherit that which we are born into and where we subsequently live out our lives. And I want to define these words biblically, contextually, because our culture has pretty much watered them down. They mean almost anything and everything, and therefore they mean nothing. They have become what Francis Schaeffer called connotation terms. Terms are words that are completely devoid of, of meaning, their original meaning, and filled and infused with whatever connotation the user wants to fill them with. And I want to start out by defining that second term in verse 6. And we'll come back and look at the first term in a little bit. But verse 6, it says that at the right time, Christ died for, for whom? The ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. What does that term mean? And it's actually a very interesting term in the Greek. It's asebes. It's a compound word. It's made up of two words, a negative prefix and then the verb. And we have that in our language, right? We use negative prefixes like a to basically nix out the noun or the verbal idea or the adjective like atypical. That means not typical. Or arrhythmic, not rhythmic, no rhythm. And most people, that describes a, a heart condition. For me, it describes the way I dance. But this is the word, you know, I'm, you would think that I'd be a lot more fun at Greek and Jewish weddings, but I'm really not. Not to my dear dancing partner, my wife. She has to explain to people, it's okay, he's arrhythmic. It's a condition. He's special. But this word, asebes, is made up of the negative prefix, a, and then sebo, which means to worship. And what do you do when you worship? You revere God, right? This is someone, therefore, who is, is destitute of reverential awe for God. They may even be very religious, but when it comes to the God of the Bible, the God revealed in Scripture, they have no value or regard for Him. An ungodly person lives life without any regard for the true and living God. They have no reverence for Him. And it almost goes without saying that they have no capacity to know God and therefore no capacity to truly uh, worship Him. So they have no capacity to truly know God, no capacity to love God. Ungodliness then leads to false worship, to idolatry. And we should really say that ungodliness leads to multiple kinds of idolatry and false worship because man is basically polytheistic in nature. 
we fashion gods after our needs, our desires, our fears even. And so because those are multiple in each of our lives, man usually has multiple gods. So an ungodly person may worship a false deity. They may worship money, pleasure, cars, pizza, themselves, or a combination of those or others. But having no regard for the true God leads to idolatry and false worship. That's what ungodliness is, and that's what ungodliness begets. And Paul tells us that before coming to Christ, we lacked reverence for God. We lacked devotion to God. We lack the worship of the one and true God. That's a terrible state to be in, right? It's what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2.12 as being without God and without hope in this world. That's where we were. We were ungodly. Moving on to verse 8, we note that our state of being before Christ in relation to God was as sinners. Now, what does it mean to sin? You all know the basic meaning, right? It means to, to miss the mark, right? It is to break law. It is to basically act in a way that's contrary to God's law. It is to engage in wrongdoing. In other words, we continually, before meeting Christ, eviscerated the law of God, God's word. We were in a perpetual state of breaking God's good and perfect law. Therefore, we were in a perpetual state of utter moral collapse. We had, as it were, the scarlet letter S on our breasts. Not like the, the letter A for adulteress that Nathaniel Hawthorne brings out in his wonderful novel, but a much broader term. We were sinners. That was our title. That's what we were, and we were okay with it. And then in verse 10, we are also called enemies. This is a pretty straightforward but a very uh, loaded word. What does it mean? Well, the best way to describe what an enemy is, is to see what an enemy does. You've probably heard the phrase, stupid is, stupid does. An enemy is what an enemy does. And there's an, a logical chain of behavior when you stop to think what an enemy does. Actively, first of all, an enemy hates. That's like the core root emotion. A good enemy will hate if that's an oxymoron, forgive me. And because they hate, they are also hostile. And because they are hostile, they oppose at every opportunity. Now think about that. We were enemies of God. The Bible says that before coming to Christ, we were his enemies. Basically, we were everything, the triumvirate of hatred, hostility, and opposition. That means we hated God. And you say, well, wait a minute, that seems a bit extreme. And you want to push back on that a little bit. Well, if to truly love God is to keep God's commandments, right? that's what Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And that's true of Jesus, but that's also true of the Father. They don't have two laws. They have one law, one purpose. So basically... We hated God. If to love God is to keep his commandments, then to violate his law is to hate God. We hated him by breaking his law. Also, we were hostile to God. We not only hated God, but we were hostile to him. His person, his law, this really shows up in unsaved men hostility when it comes to the law of the Lord. There's antipathy. There's agitation with the law. You've all experienced it. 
in your homes, in your workplace, at school, in places where you hang out with people who don't believe in Jesus yet, if you're discussing any moral issue like the family or parenting or anything like that, the minute there is severe anxiety and agitation in the room is when you state something you inject into the conversation. Well, you know what the Bible says about this is, blop, right? That's when you feel the agitation come up. We harbored hostility to God's ways in our heart. We did not appreciate his plan for our lives. We hated his word. And we basically, as human beings, don't like anybody telling us what to do or what not to do, right? We don't like anybody telling us what to do. This is true from childhood, right? I mean, from the very time we were able to say no, we didn't like laws. We just spent the last weekend with my three-year-old grandson, little Marcelo. He's almost three. And you guys ever hang out with a three-year-old? Judging by the profile of this congregation, that's mostly who you hang out with. Listen, have you ever met a three-year-old that's really excited about the word of the Lord that instructs he or she that they need to share? Or that they need to obey mom and dad at all times? I mean, I wasn't excited about that. Why? Because I loved me and I had a wonderful and different plan for my life that didn't include your laws, didn't include God's laws. I was basically a hostile child. And I wish I could tell you guys to go ask my mother but she's in heaven and can't incriminate me anymore. But she would tell you, oh, he was hostile. To any form of instruction, I would say, come, he would go. I would say, up, he would say, down. I had an antithetical relationship with most adults in my life, like my uncle Dorn. My brother's here. He'll remember my uncle Dorn, Albert Dorn, Alberto Dorn. He was a Dutch guy, thick unibrow, just really, really menacing. He was married to my mom's sister, whose nickname was Rubia in Argentina. This is all happened in Argentina. That's where I was born and lived for the first seven years of my life. But her nickname was Rubia. He had this big unibrow, so they had this hair thing going on. But he used to just intimidate me so much. I mean, I would find myself confessing things to him that I hadn't even done yet. You know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you, what, what, what are you up to? Nothing? No one? Ever? <laughs> Just contemplating safely playing with matches? He came and visited us about 15 years ago when obviously I had my own home, my own family. And um, I loved my Uncle Dorn and my Aunt Rubia. But I always thought Uncle Dorn was about 6'5", 300 pounds because was, it was the intimidation factor with the brow. And I went to pick him up at LAX, and here he comes off the jetway. And I go up to him and look down to him, and I realize he's all of 5'7 and 150 pounds. And I thought, I was scared of you? You had the swagger thing going on with, with the brow. But I remember one time, he took me on some errands with him. He had to go pick something up at the church. It was a weekday, so nobody was there except the pastor. And he pulls up to the sidewalk on the street, but in front of the church, and he's about to leave, and he says, now listen to me. Don't touch this. And he points down to the stick shift. And I'm thinking, why? 
You know, and then he says, and whatever you do, whatever you do, don't do this. And he takes a stick shift and puts it in gear. And then he takes it out and leaves it in neutral. And he leaves me. So it's just me and the stick shift all alone in the car. And I'm thinking, why does he not want me to touch it? And so I, I look around and I touch. Touch, 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 touch. We're touching, we're touching. And then I take it and I force it forward and I go, clunk. And I got it in gear without the clutch. Not bad for a six-year-old. Pretty impressive. My uncle comes back. He turns the key over and the car lurches, almost hits the guy in front of him. He goes, you touched it. Why did you touch this? Because you told me not to. It was the unibrow. I was a hostile child. We were hostile to God in his law. And so we also oppose God in our thinking, our scheming, in our hearts, in our inward person. Paul says, we were ungodly sinners and enemies of God. And you say, I thought this was good news. There is good news, but first it gets a little worse. You can say, oi, it gets worse. That's, I think, a marginal reading in the Hebrew paraphrase Bible. It gets worse. Paul dumps another adjective on us that uh, describes our former relationship to God, and it is the word, in verse 6, helpless, that we read just a few minutes ago. And this is an interesting descriptor to add to our list because it, it actually is the top word in this paragraph. It sits at the top. It's the, the number one word in terms of word order, not word odor, word order. I have a hard time saying that. But you could say that because of the word order, this is the most salient characteristic or quality in our former state of being before God. Actually, helpless just means impotent, weak, feeble. It can be translated sickness. In the Theological uh, Dictionary of the New Testament, it says it conveys the idea of not being able to do anything about one's situation. Not being able to do anything about one's situation. This is interesting, significant, for a couple of reasons. For one, it tells us that apart from Christ, we were completely helpless to affect or reform ourselves in, in terms of our condition and behavior. We were ungodly sinners, enemies of God, and completely powerless to change ourselves, to change our station. And our helplessness is also significant in a second way. Again, man is ungodly, without reverence for God. He is a sinner, that is, he despises God's word and his law. He is an enemy of God, which means that he hates God, he's hostile to God, and he opposes God. And so when you add all that up, it means that man is at war with the most powerful being in the universe. And his main characteristic in his ungodly, sinful, hostile makeup is helplessness, weakness. Guys, we were in trouble because... In our natural, unsaved state, the only thing left for us to experience would be God's wrath. That would be our inheritance. Because that's what you do with radical, vulnerable, hateful enemies. You judge them. You crush them. And that's why we love epic stories like Dumas's Man in the Iron Mask and the, the Count of Monte Cristo. And we, we identify with Shylock and the Merchant of Venice. We love getting our pound of flesh. We love to see the great hero absolutely crush 
and judge his weaker enemy, right? There's a sense of justice in that. And the only thing left for us to experience would be the just wrath of God. And here we're talking about apocalyptic wrath. Not just the the wrath of God unveiled against men, as we read in chapter 1, where God allows sinners to experience the consequences of their own behavior. That's the wrath of God as well. But there's also an apocalyptic wrath when God will judge men through Jesus Christ. Where men who reject the redemption of God through Jesus will have to stand before God and give an account for every word and every deed that they have ever done. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty six that on that day, the day of judgment, man will have to give an accounting for every idle or careless word they have uttered. Not just the terrible deeds, but the careless word. And that day is sure, it is certain, it is coming, it is deserved. When Paul was in Athens speaking to his Greek audience, he said this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? By the way, that was uttered almost 2,000 years ago, and we're still in that sliver of time. And God has not judged man with his apocalyptic stored up wrath yet. Isn't God patient? But he's calling men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day Paul says, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, and that's Jesus Christ. God has appointed a day. Guys, it's on the calendar when he will pour out his collected wrath on all disobedient men for all time. That's true. That's coming. Do you realize that in hell, God will be wholly absent except for his wrath? That means his love, his mercy, his kindness, his long-suffering, his grace will all be gone. No presence in hell. But the burning anger and fury of a just judge against sin will be there for eternity. David, in the Psalms, in Psalm 7, verse 11, said this, God is a righteous judge. That is, he can't wink at sin. He has to judge it. And a God who has indignation or anger, wrath, every day. And that wrath is is collecting. Let me show you, let me just give you a definition of God's wrath. And I've heard Eric make a couple references to it, but it's the best definition I've ever read. It just comes from my study Bible. And it is this, it says, that divine wrath is not an impulsive outburst of anger aimed capriciously at people God does not like, right? That's how we view wrath. When we kick our toe on the kitchen table, When we get up in the middle of the night, we want to kick the table because we're angry. That's not how God's anger works. What is it? It is the settled, steady, merciless, graceless, compassionless response of a righteous God against sin. And that's why the author of Hebrews says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. My friends, that's God's coming day of judgment and wrath, and that's what we deserved if we remained helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. That was our state of being, our spiritual condition before Christ. Rebellion in our inheritance was wrath, God's wrath. But what was God's response? What is God's response to our spiritual condition? 
It is really a twofold thing. It's a cause and effect. The first is propitiation, or atoning for our sins through the death of his son Jesus, which results in reconciliation, and that is being restored to God's favor. And I love what one of my favorite lexicons says about this, the UBS Greek lexicon. It says that reconciliation means to be put back into friendship with God. This is God's loving, sovereign response to our helpless, enemy-like rebellion. Look at verse 6 and following. This is the good news. For while we were still helpless at the right time, in a sovereign plan, in a sovereign time, Christ died for the assay base, the ungodly, those who had no reverence for him. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, lawbreakers, Christ died for us. Verse 9, Much more than having been justified or acquitted, declared righteous by his blood, his death, we shall be saved from what? From the wrath of God through him. God's collected wrath that we just talked about, God's wrath of vengeance on that day of judgment in in Acts chapter 17 that Paul referenced, all of that because of the atonement or the propitiation of Jesus has been removed from our future and nailed to the cross, Paul says in Colossians 2.14, and it is in our past. It is removed from our future. And in its place, we get reconciliation, God's friendship. We have traded wrath for reconciliation. It's a pretty good deal, isn't it? I think Eric said a couple of weeks ago that Luther called this the great exchange. I, that's the first time I ever heard that. That's, that's true. That's good. I always called it the great cosmic swap. Not exactly as eloquent as Luther. But it's true. This is the cosmic exchange that every Christian experiences. Through the cross of Christ, we exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness and God's everlasting friendship. That's such an amazing thing to me. That should take our breath away. Turn in your Bible just for a second to 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is this lays out the this cosmic swap in detail, and it's so amazing. 2 Corinthians 5.21. In verse 20, Paul says, We beg you, he and Timothy... On behalf of Christ, be reconciled, same term as in Romans 5, be reconciled to God. They were urging and pleading with sinners who hadn't availed themselves of this great swap, this great exchange. And then he says this in verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Literally, he, God the Father, made he, God the Son, that's a reference to Jesus, who knew no sin. That's a very precise choice of words. Non posse peccari. Jesus was not able to sin. He was impeccable. This speaks of his sinlessness. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He was unfamiliar with sin experientially. He never committed a sin. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. That means our sin was recorded or accounted to Jesus' account. What does that mean? This is You need to really listen to this because it is mind-blowing to me. This means that on the cross, 
God treated Jesus as the embodiment of evil. This is the way R.C. Sproul put it. On the cross, Christ became everything that God could not endure. That means when God the Father looked down on the cross and he saw Jesus, he saw the embodiment of everything that was vile and evil. Then notice the next phrase, on our behalf. That's important because this tells us that Jesus was our substitute. The curse for sin that belonged to me, that belonged to you, fell upon him. It was placed upon Jesus, and he became a curse of God for us. Paul put it this way in Galatians, excuse me, in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed of God is everyone who hangs on the tree. Why? Why did God the Father do that? Why did God the Son subject himself to this? So that, that gives us the purpose clause, so that we, who's we? It's the helpless, the ungodly, the sinners, the enemies of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that God might credit to our account the very divine righteousness of Jesus Christ. To sinners in union with Jesus, in him, God accounts the righteousness of his Son. He imputes the divine righteousness of his Son. That means that the, the life of Jesus, his perfect life, is ours by imputation. When God looks down on you, what he sees is not a sinner. If you trusted Christ, he sees the divine, pure, holy, eternal righteousness of Jesus. That's quite a swap. And this is more, as been, it has been mentioned before, than just simply the removal of sin. This is also the addition of righteousness, the imputation of righteousness. One pastor put it this way. This is Pastor John MacArthur. He summarized this whole idea, this whole concept with this verse, with this sentence. He said, On the cross, God treated Jesus as if you lived your life so that he might treat you as if you lived his. And ain't that good news, right? That's good news. That's good news. And it's more than good news. It's mind-blowing news. It's mind-bending news. It is astounding. Paul says as much in verse 7. In fact, let's read verse 6 also for context. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Then he says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. He says, I suppose it's feasible, he muses, that someone would die for the good man, right? A great general, you lay down your life as a soldier to advance his cause or whatever. But then he says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, given our pre-saved condition, that we were helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies, God's propitiation in Jesus and his reconciliation is such a supernatural kindness, isn't it? Supernatural. The Bible challenges us to imagine an eminent, supremely powerful, just and offended foe, a foe who has his enemy cornered and in sight for destruction, 
but who instead of crushing his enemy, he refuses to annihilate him in a shocking twist, swaps places with his enemy, bears his just punishment, and then makes that enemy the intense focus of his love and riches. What? It's like we have no reference point for such a scenario in the human realm. It just, it it bends our language. It destroys our metaphors. Let me weakly, feebly illustrate. Can you imagine SEAL Team 6 after cornering the world's most notorious bad guy, Osama bin Laden? Can you imagine that by presidential and congressional decree, instead of killing him, they pardon him? And not just, hey, you know, that 9-11 thing, forget about it, we're good, but actually extend to him U.S. citizenship and set him up at a lavish seaside mansion in Florida, all on the taxpayer's dime for the rest of his life. What if that expertly trained SEAL, after zeroing in his sight on bin Laden, refused to shoot? And instead of doing that, he decidedly took his finger off the trigger, lowered his weapon, and said to everybody in that room, I've been informed by the President and Congress that Osama bin Laden has been granted the legal right to be reconciled to our people. He has been guaranteed full rights and freedoms as an American, including the right to live among us in peace free of fear. He is expunged of his crimes against America and now enjoys imputed citizenship. That just rings completely crazy in our mind's ear, doesn't it? If not offensive. Here's the point. The propitiation of God through Christ and the reconciliation that that achieved stretches the powers of our human language. We just don't know how to relate to that. That's why Paul says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone will dare even to, even to die. But God does the unthinkable, the impossible, the miraculous, the wondrous. He saves and pardons sinners who are his enemies. You know, guys, I've often wondered if the host of heaven, especially around Christmas and Passover and Easter, as I read the different narratives surrounding each event, but I've often wondered if the host of heaven watched the unfolding of salvation with utter holy amazement. Peter says that angels long to look and understand the gospel. They're drawn to the beauty and symmetry and the treasure of the gospel, right? I wonder if, as they followed it in space and time at the manger at Calvary and in the tomb, if they were just blown away even more than we are. Our spiritual condition before Christ was rebellion. God's response to our condition was propitiation, the death of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, and reconciliation to be restored to God's favor and friendship. And the third point, we'll just pretty much just mention it. The outcome of exaltation. Look at verse 11. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. We exalt in God. To exalt in something is to glory in something. It is to boast in something. It is to rejoice in something. It is to be taken away by the beauty of something. And here we're not worshiping something. We're not exalting in a thing, but in the person of God himself. Because we have been brought near and put back into the favor of God through the expiatory work 
of Jesus. Because we are no longer ungodly without reverence, we exalt in the person of God himself, in the knowledge of God, in intimacy with God, in the friendship of God, in his good and just favor. And it's in that spirit, guys, that we come to the table, the Lord's table. We rejoice in the person of God. And the Lord's table is all about propitiation, isn't it? It's about the breaking and the crushing of the body of Christ. It's about the shedding of his blood, which is for the remission of our sins. It is about reconciliation, because now we come invited as welcomed, beloved children and intimate friends, because the enmity between us and God has been completely removed, taken out of the way by the work of Jesus Christ. And so we're made worthy because of what he's done. And it doesn't matter what you feel like right now, even if you feel like you're not worthy of taking this, remember who you are in Jesus and what God has done to you through Jesus, for you through Jesus. He has cleansed you. Paul said in Romans 8.32 that he who did not spare his own son, God the Father who did not hold back his son from what? From Calvary. You know, if you saw your kid running out in front of a car, you'd jump out to prevent him or her from being hit. God did not spare his own son from the cross, but it says delivered him up. That means to deliver someone over to death by execution. You know who gave Jesus over to the executioner? It was God the Father. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. Why? For us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? You come to the table. If there's some sin between you and God that you haven't confessed, confess it and drink and eat of this table. And if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I beg you, on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. What keeps you? Why not tonight? Why not now? He said, well, Marcelo, I I would really like to, but I don't know how. If you desire to be forgiven of your sins and cry out to God, just pray this prayer. Make it your own. Let's all bow our heads together. Just mean this sincerely from your heart and call out to God and pray something to the effect, Dear God, I confess that I am a sinner, that I have not regarded you as the one true God. I have not revered you. In fact, I have been your enemy. I believe, Father, that Jesus died on the cross as my substitute, that he carried my sins upon himself, that he bore your wrath for my sins on that cross, that he died for me, that he was buried for me, that he rose again for me. I believe that. I trust him. I trust you, my God. Forgive me of my sin. Save me this very moment, I pray in Jesus' name. If that has been the cry of your heart this evening, then your sins are forgiven. It's that simple. And you have been transferred and welcomed into God's family. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is the body, my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember that and be grateful and take it together. In the same way, 
He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the symbol of the shed blood of Jesus. Let us gratefully take it together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul said, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, our dear Lord Jesus, we thank you, Father, for the plan that you that you designed from long ago, from eternity past, to send your Son as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of people like us sinners who are your enemies. We thank you for that plan. We thank you for executing it and for making it real. Lord Jesus, we know that you will not drink of this this juice, this this wine, and eat this bread until you do it newly in your kingdom. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're ready. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.